Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Well, hello, and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Ken Sullivan. Now, today I'll be teaching through the book of Titus, chapter 1, the epistle, uh, the pastoral epistle of Titus, chapter 1. Uh, so let's begin. Grab your Bible, follow along with us. I'm reading in the New International Version, as usual, and uh, if you don't have a New International Version, just follow along with whatever version you might have. Uh, first of all, before we begin, let's let's look at a little background information on Titus. Titus was uh, a Gentile, probably a Greek, who Paul led to Christ, possibly on his first missionary journey. Now, like like Timothy, Titus was a young minister who was mature, sound, capable, and a trusted traveling companion of Paul who was well qualified to oversee churches and set them in order. Titus was given the specific responsibility by Paul of organizing uh, the new converts in Crete. He was to organize them into a local church, uh, 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 local church or local churches. There were several churches in that region. This letter to Titus instructed him to, um, to choose leaders, on the basis of proven character and conduct, and to deal with false teachers, uh, quickly deal with them and remove them uh, from the church, to instruct church members to live lives that were worthy of the gospel they claimed to believe, and to encourage every church member to be careful to maintain good works. Now, Paul and Titus had worked together in evangelizing uh, on the island and winning a number of souls to Christ, but the but the work of church organization and administration had to be completed, and so Paul left Titus there to complete that work while he went on to work somewhere else. Now this letter was probably written from Corinth, Greece, a short time after Paul wrote First Timothy, somewhere between sixty three and sixty six A.D. Paul's first letter to Timothy and this letter to Titus have similar instruction because the, circumstance, uh, the circumstances were very, very similar. Both Timothy and Titus um, are given the responsibility of organizing the churches and appointing church leaders, a very, uh, very heavy responsibility. First and second Timothy and Titus are called pastoral epistles because they were written to provide vital instruction and information on church organization, operation, and leadership, including the qualifications of elders and pastors and bishops and deacons. Every church leader, every church leader should carefully study these three epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, because they contain important practical information on church organization and administration should be carefully read through and carefully studied. All right. Now let's begin our study. I'm reading verses one through three. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. Now, here Paul opens by revealing his mission in verse 1 as being, number one, to further the faith of God's elect, that is, to help God's people grow in their faith. All true Christians, all true Christians are God's elect. So if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, you've accepted Christ, you are among God's elect. Number two, um, Paul's mission was to further their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, and certainly the truth leads to godliness. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8.38. Uh, the more of the truth we know and respond to, the freer and more godly we become. That's uh, a, an important point to remember, that, that the more the truth we respond to, not just the amount that we hear, we can hear a lot of truth. If we don't respond to any of it, it's like uh, sitting before a big meal and not eating any of it. The strength is in the meal. Okay, the growth is in the meal. The maturity is in the meal. So uh, if we hear God's word and then we respond to it, then we're going to grow. Um, Christians live godly. Paul encouraged them. Paul encouraged Titus to encourage the Cretans there, uh, the Cretan Christians that. Uh, to live godly, to be careful to live godly in, in the hope of eternal life. We live godly because certainly we want to respond to God's love, but also because we're expecting eternal life. We're preparing ourselves for the life to come. Now, the word hope, when Paul says uh, the hope of eternal life, that we live godly in hope of eternal life, that's not hope like a wish. That's hope like an expectation. Uh, we are confident that we're going to have eternal life. So the word hope means expectation. We live godly because we fully expect that God is going to give us eternal life, that we're going to live forever. God, who does not lie, promised eternal life to his people before he created us, even before the beginning of time. It was all planned out. It didn't just happen. God wasn't taken by surprise when Adam sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve, and, and then he had come up with this plan about sending someone to rescue us. That plan was, was already included in the creation itself. Before he created the world, he knew that he would have to redeem us, and he knew that he wanted us to live eternally with him, and that came through Jesus Christ. God brought this promise to light through the preaching entrusted to Paul and now to us. It's been handed down from generation to generation. And so God brings to light this, this, this news, this, what he's done, this news of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it is uh, brought about, it is promulgated, it is uh, brought to light through the gospel. The gospel brings to light what was previously unknown. God knew it uh, from the very time he created us, but it was unknown to anyone beside God. And even the angels, the Bible said, a desire to look into these things. God sent his son Jesus into the world to offer his body on the cross 
as a sacrifice to pay for our sins and bring us forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, and eternal life in new glorified immortal bodies through faith in Christ. That's our inheritance. That's what we are to look forward to. It's coming. It is approaching. And so we should prepare ourselves by being careful to maintain good works, to live good, good lives. This good news was previously unknown, again, but was proclaimed by God's apostles and ministers, and now we are proclaiming it in our generation. Paul said in 2 Timothy uh, 1 and 9 through 10, and I'm reading that in the New International Version, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So before, I'm, I'm repeating this almost to the point of redundancy, before God created time, before he created the worlds, he knew that Christ would have to come and to rescue us. He had to die uh, and rise again in order to save us from our sins and, and uh, destruction. It was part of God's plan of creation. It was planned long before creation uh, was even began. Christ would be our rescuer. I like that word rescuer because it's clearer. I love the word savior as well because he came to save us from our sins and from um, eternal damnation in a fiery hell. Jesus destroyed death when he rose from the dead. Death has no more power over those who believe in Christ and put their faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 in the New Living Testament says, For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So, Death had been dealt with through Jesus Christ. When he came, he died on the cross, he rose again, uh, then he defeated death. The gospel is the light that brought us the awareness that Jesus Christ has destroyed death and brought us life and immortality. We live forever. We will live forever as immortals in paradise because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And so, that's a lot to celebrate. So whenever you're tempted to feel sad, uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, fog of depression, when it settles over you, then you need to look ahead like Jesus did when he was on a cross. Jesus looked beyond the cross to the time when he would be in paradise with us. He thought about what his mission was about, and that was saving us. While he was hanging there, um, he looked beyond the cross. He despised the shame, but he looked beyond the cross to the time when, when uh, we would be together with him. Now I'm reading verses four through five. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Like Timothy, Titus was given the charge to appoint elders in the church and to set things in order. 
Paul had done some of the work of organizing the church, but had not finished it. And so Titus, his his uh, companion, his his uh, tra- traveling companion, preaching companion, working companion, his uh, son in the faith was left to finish that. Paul had the ultimate the, uh, the ultimate confidence in Titus. He knew Titus's character. He knew Titus's maturity. So he knew he could leave Titus to finish that work. He knew that uh, Titus was capable of appointing elders according to the qualification that Paul is laying down here. So Paul went on again, as I said earlier, uh, to another mission, and he left Titus in charge of finishing out the work of planning that church and uh, organizing it and administering it until he would send Titus some relief. Now I'm reading verses six through eight. An elder, and here he's, he's outlining for us the qualifications of elders and church leaders. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul lists 14 qualifications of an elder or overseer or pastor here. And actually, uh, what is interesting to me is that Preaching and teaching is not even on this list. I mean, uh, certainly in, in, uh, when he spoke to Timothy in his letter to Timothy and he laid out these same qualifications of leadership, it mostly had to do with character rather than performance. Now, don't get me wrong. Teaching and preaching are important qualifications of uh, church leadership. But uh, there were elders, some who didn't teach, um, some who just did the work of administration. Uh, and then there were preaching and teaching elders. But it's important to understand that the qualifications of character um, are more important even than the qualification of, of being able to teach and to preach. I mean, uh, equally as important, I should say. Uh, so Paul puts emphasis upon the qualifications of character here. And I, I think that most of the time when people pick out a, a new preacher, they look at character last. They look at his ability to preach first. Can he woo the crowd? Does he have a good command of the, of, of the scripture? Is he a great performer? Uh, because a lot of churches are grown now just by performance. But uh, it's great when you have an elder or a, a pastor uh, who can preach and teach who can hoop in our in our tradition, African-American tradition, hooping. And that's wonderful. I, and I love it. I enjoy it. Um, but the the equally as important as the ability to preach and teach is these qualifications of leadership that I'm about to, uh, uh, to go down through here. So Paul lists 14 qualifications of an elder or overseer or pastor. Number one, blameless. The person had to be blameless. That is, guiltless, that is faultless, above reproach, an impeccable character. So the person, and I'm not saying 
perfect in the sense that he doesn't make mistakes, but perfect in the, in the sense that he is mature, that the person has a strong character, that uh, he doesn't have a bad reputation uh, of dishonesty and uh, um, lack of self-control and all of these things as, as we'll go down further. So number one, he should be blameless. He should be guiltless and faultless, uh, not guilty of, of, uh, uh, of doing things that will bring reproach upon the church. Number two, the person should be blameless. Paul mentions blameless twice. And so I listed here twice. Blameless is mentioned, Paul mentions it twice as a way of emphasizing that important point because it is so important. Number three, the person should be faithful to his wife. Uh, the worst thing you want to do is choose a man who is unfaithful, who is an adulterer, just because he can preach. You can't overlook that. That's a terrible thing and it will destroy a church. So he has to be faithful to his wife and not an adulterer. That's number three. Number four, not overbearing. That is not bossy and domineering, bullying and, and oppressive. He must not lord it over God's people. And that's important. So look at that, those character traits. And then number five, can't be quick-tempered. Um, quick-tempered people uh, do things that uh, just uh, will bring a reproach upon a church. They will do damage to a church. They will do damage to people's um, relationships, and uh, they're like a bull in a china shop. If a person can't control his anger, then he has no business being a, a leader of the church. A person should be even-tempered and in control of his anger. And then number six, he could not be a drunkard. That is, he doesn't overindulge in uh, the use of alcoholic beverages. Now, I would like to say he doesn't drink at all. But that's not what the text says here. And so I don't want to take the liberty of going beyond what the text says here. The, the text says that he can't be a drunkard, that he can't overindulge in the use of alcoholic beverages. Now, I discourage uh, drinking of alcoholic beverages because the Bible says that it's not wise. And, and our policy at New Direction is uh, a non-drinking policy. And uh, um so that's what we encourage in people. Of course, everybody won't listen to what we say, but we encourage people to, uh, to abstain from the use of alcohol. But the Bible here says that an, an elder cannot be a, a drunkard. And then number seven, not violent. Violent people lose their temper, they fight, they destroy things, and they are a very bad witness. And they can even get in trouble with the law. So um, you don't want that in your church. You don't want to read about your church and about your pastor in the newspaper. You don't want to have to go get him out of jail. Number eight, not pursuing dishonest gain, which means he must be honest. Uh, he doesn't gamble or cheat or steal. Uh, he, he earns his money, uh, as the commercial said, the old-fashioned way. He earns it. So, um Honesty is very important, a very important qualification of leadership. And then number nine, hospitable. A pastor or an elder or church leader has to be friendly, cordial. He has to be courteous, hospitable. He has to be welcoming to guests, and he has to be a good host. And then number 10, he has to be a lover of what is good. He has to love good. He has to love love. 
He has to love faithfulness and, and all of those attributes of the spirit, uh, love and joy and peace, long-suffering and gentleness and goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. He has to love those things, those qualities in people. He has to love and encourage good qualities in the people that he is leading. And then number 11, he has to be self-controlled. He or she, church leaders, have to be self-controlled, able to control emotions or actions, have to be able to restrain himself. And when he feels anger rising, he has to be able to cap that and hold that back. Or, or if, if he has feels a compulsion to do something that is ungodly, he has to be able to contain that, to, uh, to restrain himself in emotional and volatile situations. And then number 12, he has to be upright. To be upright is to be respectable, to be honest, to be honorable and ethical, to be a righteous person. And then number 13, he has to be holy, devoted to God and the things of God. He or she has to be holy, okay, set apart to God. And then number 14, he has to be disciplined, self-disciplined able to carefully control the way uh, he or she lives, works, and behaves. Um, especially, he has to be disciplined to, uh, to complete tasks. Doesn't just start stuff and, and then when he gets tired of it, move on to something else and leave stuff unfinished. He has to be disciplined. Now, this list is meant to be exclusive. That is, it's meant to be disqualifying. Paul list, put all of these things here because he knew that most people won't qualify to be elders. Being an elder is an exclusive position. It's an, ex, ex, it's an, it's an exclusive office. Uh, you don't just go willy-nilly pick anybody and put them in the position of eldership. So you have to go down this list and see if he has this qualification, this qualification, this qualification. Go down the list and carefully examine their lives. He was giving Titus all of this detailed information because he wanted to disqualify most people. He only wanted to qualify people who were qualified and appoint elders among those people who had uh, these qualities of character. Paul wanted to exclude everyone but those very special people who, who possess the distinct qualifications to lead the church. Leading a church is very serious business. Just any person can't walk in and assume the position of pastor, not even if they can preach well or teach well. I'll say that again, because we're kind of upside down in our world today, and we need to get some stuff right side up before Jesus comes. We're upside down because the first thing we look at is a person's ability to preach and teach. And then we say, well, they got bad character. You know, I was just uh, talking to someone the other day about a pastor and he has all uh, seemingly all of these, uh, uh, you know, bad character traits. Uh, but then the person said, but he can preach. He can preach. And then preaching is important. But so are the these uh, qualities of character, these qualifications that either qualify us or disqualify us. The most important role of elders, pastors, and bishops is to be an example to the people. 
So you can preach one thing and do another. Guess what the people are going to follow? If you're saying one thing and doing something else, they're going to feel relaxed. They're going to feel that they have a license to do what you do. And so we have to lead people by example. Set the example of what they teach, what they preach. That's what every elder, every pastor, every leader should do. Set the example of what they teach and preach. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now I'm reading verses 9 through 11. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So um, Paul had these people uh, who were of the circumcision, that is Jewish people who had become Christians and they were teaching wrong doctrine. Uh, so another important requirement of an elder is sound doctrine. He must stick to the teaching, that is the message of the truth, just as he was taught it and not deviate from it or add to it. So Paul is, is really emphasizing this. Sound doctrine is so important. This pure message of sound doctrine, that is teaching, doctrine is teaching. <clears throat> it is the only way to encourage others and to refute, uh, to refute, that is refute or to prove wrong or false. That's how you Prove something is wrong or false by teaching what is right. So if when we teach sound doctrine, we can reprove those and correct those uh, who are teaching wrong doctrine, and we can uh, oppose that wrong doctrine with right doctrine. True teaching is the only way to correct and, and prove false doctrine to be wrong. Uh, you have to know a true dollar bill before you can discern a fake one a counterfeit dollar bill. And so it's important to know the word of God. If you are an elder, a teacher, a leader, if you're just, if you're a, a lay member, if you're just a new convert coming into church, the first thing you want to do is begin to read your Bible every day and to go through the scriptures and study them. You won't understand everything, but every time you read it, you'll understand more. True teaching is the only way to correct and prove doctrine false or wrong. Okay. Now, holding to the true teaching of Christ and the apostles is so very important because there are so many false teachers and deceivers who mislead people and Paul said disrupt whole houses. Paul specifically mentions the circumcision group. Again, these were Christian Jews who were teaching the new Gentile converts that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. The most effective way to challenge false teaching is to preach and to teach the truth. I, I don't think I can say that enough. So that's why it's so important for pastors, especially to read and explain the scriptures, read the scriptures and explain the scriptures, teach it to the people, have a time when people are learning what the word of God says. They're having help from you to understand the scriptures, read and read and explain the scriptures, pastors. Now I'm reading verses 12 through 14. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. 
Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Now, the Cretans had a bad reputation of being liars, animalistic, and lazy gluttons. That was uh, the word that was out about them. Those Cretans who had become Christians needed to be taught a better way to live. And this is what Paul was urging. And this is why Paul emphasized, emphasizes good behavior, godly living so much. Teaching that challenges ungodly lifestyle requires leaders um, who, are, who lead by example. Um, these leaders have to lead by example. They have to teach sound doctrine, and they have to rebuke those who rebel against this sound doctrine. Paul didn't want the Cretans to become entrapped in Jewish myths or other man-made rules that were only distractions but did not lead to victory over sin and old bad habits. And that's what the Judaizers were trying to do. They were trying to tell them, well, it's not enough to believe in Christ. Uh, it's not enough to just put your faith in Christ. You've got to now be circumcised and you've got to keep the law of Moses. And, and this was such a great controversy that Paul had to, uh, to go and meet with the, with the brothers in uh, Jerusalem, the, uh, the other apostles that followed Christ. He had to go with this question about circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. He had to, uh, to go to special counsel and, and get information from them about this thing, whether or not it, it was true, whether or not they should be circumcised or keep the law of Moses. And of course, the elders ruled that it wasn't necessary for the Gentiles to do that, that um, they just keep themselves from eating blood and, and things strangled and, uh, and for fornication. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. So Paul's goal was to make the Cretans sound in the faith and respectable, and honorable in the way that they live. And that's what the gospel is supposed to do. When we come to Christ, our lives are transformed. Uh, we may, at one time, have been low-down uh, people who had no principles and no morals. Uh, all of us came from different kinds of backgrounds. And one thing is for sure, if we were not immoral, we were sinners on our way to hell. And so, when we come to Christ, a change begins to take place. And so Paul encourages that change. The Bible said, if anyone is in Christ, they are new creatures. Old things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. Now I'm reading verses 15 through 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. The pure Paul is referring to here are those whose hearts are purified through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking about. True Christians, those who come to Christ and, and immediately the Holy Spirit begins to move in their lives, to convict them, to, to live better lives. Everything God created is pure to those who, who come to Christ with a, with a right heart because they use everything 
in a good and godly way that honors God and blesses people. So when your heart is pure, then, then you use the things of God for good purposes. So, you know, money, for example, is amoral. It can do good or it can be used to do evil. It depends on who has it in his hands or her hands. So it is with the, uh, the person who has a pure heart is going to do what's good. Person with an evil heart, everything is evil. Their, their mindset is on doing evil. They'll take good things to do evil with them. And that's what Paul is talking about here. To those who are corrupted and unbelieving, nothing is pure because they corrupt everything God gives us and, and defiles it. So that's what Paul is, is talking about here when he says, to the pure, everything is pure. Um, to those who are Im, uh, impure, ungodly, everything is corrupt. So I think two prime examples of that, one is money, as I've already mentioned, and the other is sex. Uh, a person who is pure is going to want to restrain themselves from having sex until it is it has been sanctified through the bonds of marriage. Unbelievers corrupt sex through prostitution, adultery, fornication, pornography, all of these things. These are the ways that they take something that is good, that God intended to be used pleasurably between a husband and his wife, okay, a male and a female, husband and his wife, and then they pervert it, and then they use it in other ways. Uh, believers honor God by enjoying sex within the bonds and the confines of holy matrimony. That's why it's called holy. It's because God has sanctioned it. God has given it for us to enjoy. All things are given to us to enjoy. And so we don't want to pervert that. Unbelievers use money for ungodly purposes, as I said. And, and uh, they buy and sell drugs. They buy sex. They sell sex. And they influence um, people in ungodly pleasures and entertainment. So um, are, you, are you pure? Is your heart pure? Then take the things of God and use them for good. Now, false teachers were imposing man-made rules on the new converts and restricting their freedom by condemning things that God had not condemned. Okay, so they were condemning certain kinds of meat. Well, God said we could eat anything. Christ rose from the dead. Uh, he purged all meat. So we can eat anything in moderation. Um, so people who are religious minded and who, who are false teachers tend to go out and make up a whole bunch of rules. And they put this burden upon people that God has never imposed upon us. God has given us great freedom. Uh, he's given us all things to enjoy. And so people who are false teachers love to try to make themselves feel holy by imposing all of these rules. They think that the more rules you keep, the holier you are. But God was against that because they were shutting up the door of salvation. They were making it hard for people to get saved with all of these rules. And so Paul was hard on that. He said that they claim to know God, but their actions prove that they don't know God. He said they are detestable. Um, that is, they are horrible, despicable, loathsome, and, and disgusting. Jesus Christ was hard on the Pharisees because they were making it very hard for people to get saved with all of their man-made rules. You will, you will remember that Jesus was gentle with the sinners. 
He was gentle and kind. Even the woman that was caught in adultery, he was gentle with her and he was kind to her because he wanted to gently lead her out of that life into new life. Well, the Pharisees wanted to stone her, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And and plus, they were making all kinds of other man-made rules that made it hard for people to get saved. And people still do that today with all of their man-made rules that they impose upon us. And so Jesus is hard on religious people who add to the scriptures and, and, and make up all of these things. He's, he's harder on them than he is on the sinners, the prostitutes and the adulterers, uh, because he knows that these people know that they're sinners. And, and if they receive the message and see the love of Christ, they're apt to change. But the religious people impose all these things upon people and make make it hard for them to get saved. Well, that brings us to the close of chapter one of the book of Titus. Uh, in our next session, we will cover chapter two. If you live in the Indianapolis area, I'd like to invite you to come visit us at New Direction Church, where my son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is the lead pastor. He's the senior pastor. Our East Campus is located at 5330 East 38th Street. And our North Campus is located at 7701 East 80, uh, 86th Street. Again, our East Campus is located at 5330 East 38th Street. And our North Campus is at 7701 uh, East 86th Street. And our service times are 830 and 1130 on 38th Street and 10 a.m. on 86th Street. I hope to see you at one of our services. I hope you've enjoyed our, our time together. And until next time, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast. Trust you've enjoyed this teaching. I want you to know that my book, Teach Me About Heaven, it's available on Amazon.com or you can get it at www.EmergeCurriculum.com. 